Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Uh, we're going to look at this section of scripture. And as you turn there, I do want to let you know what we're going to do next week. We're going to have one service. And uh, it's a service in which we're going to celebrate the Lord's table together. Uh, philosophically, as a church, uh, we don't, uh, our intention, our primary um I guess uh, form on a Sunday would not be two services. That's not something that we uh, want to do. It's something that we're doing by necessity right now. Uh, and, you know, we may have to continue to do two services from now on. Uh, but we do believe the church is gathered. The church is gathered as one. And we want to experience that as much as possible. Uh, and we want to experience that when it comes to the ordinances as well. The ordinances are given to the church by Christ and should be celebrated together as much as possible. And so we're going to do that next Sunday. Uh, just so you know, up until this point, we have yet to reach 20% probably in capacity. Uh, I think what the regulations right now are, the guidelines are, are all the way up to 50%. We don't expect to even hit 35% next week. Uh, and so I, I tell you that so you can know we, we still feel like we're doing this safely. But I do want to encourage everyone to, to do something next week. Um, as you make your way to your seat and then as you go back to your car next Sunday morning, because we're going to have so uh, more people in here at once, I would ask everyone to wear a mask uh, as you make your way to your seat and back to your car. And when you're close enough to folks, have a mask on. Uh, and that's not because... I believe anything about a mask uh, or anything, and it, it's simply because we do have people here uh, who are nervous, and, and they're worried about their health, and they're worried about the health of their loved ones, uh, and we could debate that or whatever, but we're just not going to do that. Uh, we're not going to be haughty either way about it. Uh, we're going we're gonna to consider one another next week, and instead of focusing on, oh my gosh, he told me to wear a mask to church, blah, 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 blah. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to think all week about the fact that at 10 o'clock next Sunday morning, you get together with the whole church family and you get to celebrate the Lord's table together. So don't think all week what you have to do or don't get to do. Think about what we get to enjoy around the Lord's table as the Lord's people. It'll be a very simple service. Uh, song, prayer, Lord's table, start at 10 o'clock and it, it will not be over an hour long. But we feel uh, like we need to do that as a church body. We need to celebrate the gospel around the Lord's table. It is an ordinance that Jesus has given to us. It is a good thing. We don't tack the ordinances on here. They're not mascots. They are centerpieces of what we do. And we're going to celebrate that next week. And so, um, so look forward to that. Thank God for that opportunity next Sunday at 10 a.m. Uh, we will just have one service next week. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of Christ to us today. And, and as, you, as you hear the scripture, uh, we, we say so often, this is God's perfect word. And we believe that by the spirit of God, God perfectly delivered the words that he would have us to have in front of us as his authority, as his authoritative voice to us. It's God's perfect word without error. 
And we believe that as a church. We also believe in these moments as a church, it is God's perfectly intended word. You come in here today, you have lots of anxiety, you have lots of worry. There's lots of difficulty, suffering that we're enduring right now. Lots of conflict, chaos, confusion. And yet God has perfectly timed that we would gather here in this moment. He ordered your steps to, to this perfect moment for you, for our church, to hear this very word. And so hear the word of Christ to us. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your church. God, we get together in these moments with our church. We get together with our family. And you have not left us alone. We're not wondering today, what would you have us to do? Who would you have us to be? What does that look like? You have perfectly shown us in Christ. And God, I pray today that we would embrace with fear and trembling Christ-likeness. Gospel-centered Christ-likeness that looks out for the interest of others more than ourselves. That is willing to be poured out for the good of others. God, we pray today that you would make it so. For your glory and the supremacy of Christ in all things. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Maybe see it. That was simply lack of preparation. You, you thought that you could show up today and just preach a good sermon. And you didn't study hard enough. You didn't prepare good enough. You, you didn't take this seriously enough. You just thought you would show up today and preach a good sermon. Well, good sermons don't just happen on Sunday. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of preparation. Now, this was a uh, session I was having with one of my mentors immediately after I preached the sermon. And to be honest with you, I thought it was a good sermon. He didn't think it was a good sermon. And after I spent some time with him, I realized why. And one of the things he noticed during the sermon was that there was lack of preparation. And you could tell that throughout the sermon. And I was taken back as he was talking to moments growing up around athletics and sports. And you would hear coaches almost say the same thing. Like, we, we don't just show up and we're good. We're not going to be a great team just by showing up. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of preparation. And, and, and yet on that day and what we're tempted to think about a lot of things in the Christian life is I have the Holy Spirit. I have the word of God. 
I can just show up and it'll just happen. And, and, and that's not at all what happens. It doesn't happen in the Christian life that way. But yet many of us today, we think I have the gospel. I'm a Christian. I have the Holy Spirit. So I'm just going to be godly. I'm just going to be holy. And yet D.A. Carson, a, a great theologian, uh, has said this. Uh, these words, listen to what, what he says about the Christian life. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. It doesn't just happen. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to the scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. No, we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and we call it faith. And his point there is the same point my mentor was making that day is we don't just drift toward anything that is hard and that is difficult. We're not, we're not successful preachers. We're not great, great athletes. And we will not be holy Christians just by showing up and drifting toward it. No, the reality is we will drift toward sin. We will drift toward disobedience. If we don't take the Christian life seriously, we will drift toward wickedness. And the same thing is true in the context of the church when it comes to unity. Now, remember Paul's argument about unity. Unity in the church is to live out the gospel, love, mercy, grace toward one another. And that has been embodied in Jesus Christ that he displayed for us last week who became a humble servant to the point of death and was poured out for our good. That's the way unity is formed in the church is everyone is living according to Christ-like godliness, Christ-like obedience, serving one another, considering the interest of others better than themselves. And here's the truth. We're not just going to drift toward that. We're not just going to be a church full of unity. But how often do we think about unity in the church that way? That it shouldn't require any work of me. No, I show up. I hear the sermons. I sing the songs. I pray the prayers. And, and my church should just be united. There should just be unity in the church. It requires nothing of me when I think about others. It should just happen. And if it's not happening, then it's someone else's fault. I don't have to work at that. No, I do my own thing, my own spiritual things, and unity should just happen. And that's not the way it happens at all in the context of the church. It takes work. It takes intentionality. And what Paul describes here is it takes a sense of trembling and fear before God in light of the responsibility that we have before God to live in unity and to live like Christ. And this is what he explains here. Notice verse 12. He says, therefore, my beloved brethren, now in light of what Christ 
has displayed for us in humility where he would get down like a slave and serve us and even die for us in light of his example as you have always obeyed. So now, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, you are to work out your salvation. And so he looks at this church and he uses this term obedience. Now remember obedience here, what was described back in this section where he's describing Christ's obedience. And it's the obedience of a slave where you're looking out to serve others. And he says, I want you to continue to do that. You are a church that is known for looking out for one another. Continue to be humble and meek and continue to serve others the way Christ has served you. And even when I was, I've seen it. I've been there. I've seen it. And now that I'm not there, continue to do it. And he describes it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, so often we come to that verse and we read it as individuals. And and what it does is it makes us doubt our salvation. Am I really a Christian? We probably even heard others use it in that way. That you should be almost scared that you're really a Christian. And, And you should... You should before God with fear and trembling make sure that you're a Christian. That's not at all what Paul is describing here. First of all, the fear and trembling is a gravity. It's a weight. It's reverence before God. And the word work out means to complete. It means to flesh out your own salvation. And when he talks about salvation here, he's talking about your identity in Christ. Who God has saved you to be in Christ. And so he's not calling us to doubt our salvation. He's calling us to live out our salvation. Not doubt a salvation you don't have. But to flesh out the salvation you do have. And he's speaking not to individuals. But to the church as a whole. And this is his call to unity. With fear and trembling. Live in unity. Be who you're supposed to be in the world. God saved you to live like Christ as individuals who are united around the gospel. Flesh out who you are to be in the world. See, one of the things we do with this section is we rip that verse out and we apply it as individuals. And then the rest of it we apply to the church when it comes to be united. But no, he's saying to the church, live out the gospel. And it's going to take work as individuals where where there is weight and there is gravity and there is reverence before God. Why? Notice verse 13. For it is God who works in you. You are to tremble before God in light of who you are in the context of the church. Because God is doing something in your life. God is doing this. So there's a sense of weight To who you are in the church. And notice he continues. God works in you. Both to will and to work. And for his good pleasure. He just packs all these words in here. That mean will. And work. And plan. And God's desire for you. And what he's saying to to the church. Is God has a plan for your life. We so often think about that. In terms of individuals. What's God's will for my life? What's God's plan for my life? And Paul says, well, I'm going to tell you God's plan for your life. It's for you to mimic Christ-like sacrifice in the context of the church. 
God's will for your life cannot be completed apart from serving others. So you've got to have others in the context of the church. That's God's plan for your life. And for the one who understands that, there is a sense of gravity to who you are. You, you, you stand before God and you say, God, you saved me in the gospel. You've given me Jesus. And you've given me this new identity for a purpose. And there, there's this fear and trembling where, where I want to honor you. The words are used for worship, fear and trembling. I want to worship you by the way that I live my life. I want to flesh out what you've done, your plan for my life. And how do I do that? Well, I empty myself and I serve others. This means you can't tack Jesus onto your life flippantly. No, there's a sense of gravity and it's, you're considering who you are. You see, for the Christian, the answer to the question, what is God's will for your life, is simple. Christ-like humility, sacrificial service for others in the context of the church. But how often do we answer that question differently? Some of us are here today and we want to know God's will for our life. And when we think about that question, here's what we're thinking about. Where should I go to school? Who should I marry? What job should I take? Should we buy this house? What is God's will for my life? And you're thinking about your plans. And the question for you today is, does it have anything to do with what God's trying to do in your life? Because God is willing and working and He is delighting in the fact that, that He is longing for you to, to live out Christ-like humility. And yet so often we think about God's will, what I want. Well, if God wants you to be like Jesus, what did Jesus do? Jesus suffered. Jesus died for others. He sacrificed for others. He served others. And so the question is with gravity, God, who do you want me to serve? God, who do you want me to sacrifice for? With fear and trembling, God, how am I supposed to suffer the way Jesus suffered? If, if God wants me to be like Jesus, I'm not always going to be happy. I'm not always going to get what I want. It is His plan that I live out the gospel in a way that mirrors the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is why He says in verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or complaining. Because here's the, here's the connection. If God's will is that you suffer and sacrifice for others the way Jesus did, that means that you're going to have things come along in life that are going to cause you to what? Grumble and complain. Why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to endure this difficulty? The word for grumble, it, it, it's a word that, it, that is, it's spelt like the way it sounds, like a murmuring. It's just, the, the, the word looks like in Greek, just this, whoa, 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 whoa. And that, that's kind of what it communicates. Is when things don't go our way, what do we do? Maybe not that, but we make sounds. And, and when we don't, we don't even know what to say sometimes, we're just, Ugh. And what he describes here is a grumbling that, notice it leads to disputing. Conflict or controversy in the church. Now notice the progression. From grumbling, just inner turmoil, why do I have to deal with this? To eventually debating and conflict in the church. 
And we've seen how that happens in the context of churches. People just get over to the side and they murmur, they complain, they question, they whine. And before long, it takes root. It's like a spark with fire. And before long, it's not just one person murmuring to the side. It's a Wednesday night business meeting and parting ways. And he says, that's not who you're supposed to be. You're to be united. Well, how do you do that? Well, I'm supposed to live like Christ. And so if I live like Christ, I'm going to have to endure difficulty. So if I'm enduring difficulty, that means God is doing something good in my life. So I can't murmur. I embrace it. So I'm not going to debate or dispute. I'm going to be, I'm going to seek unity in the church. The, the questioning here is very similar to what we see in the questioning of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Do you remember God delivered them from slavery in Egypt? They're in the wilderness. God is feeding them manna. He's taking care of them. And what do they begin to do? Oh, this, this manna is disgusting. Can you believe we have to eat manna every day? And, and, and what do they eventually do? You know, Pharaoh was so much better to us. He gave us good food. We didn't have to eat manna. I mean, the chains on our wrists, they were difficult to endure at times. You know, you know the weights on our, on our ankles, they were hard and they were difficult, but we ate much better. And, and now we got this idiot Moses. And he's led us out here to die. And so it's this questioning, grumbling, complaining. But God doesn't see it as complaining about the food. He doesn't see it as complaining about Moses. He judges a whole generation. Why? Because it was complaining about him. And what Paul is saying is the same thing goes on in the church. When you look around and go, I can't believe I have to go to church with these people. I mean, I would do it this way. I mean, can you believe she does this? Can you believe she's this way? I can't believe I have to serve in kids once a month, twice a year. I mean, that's so hard. That's so difficult. And you whine and you complain. And before long, it becomes factions and divisions in the church. And what Paul is saying is, no, you better embrace those things with fear and trembling. And you better watch your mouth. Because it's not complaining against others. You're complaining against God. You're saying the same thing Adam said in the garden. When he sinned. And God came to him. It's not my fault God. It's this woman you gave to be with me. And how often do we say that about our church family? I'm not being fed. I'm not being encouraged. I can't find community. I didn't like the honky tonk song today. I... And what we are saying is, I can't believe God gave me these people to be with me. They're such a burden. And God sees it as attacking Him, not other people. And this is why when we say we, we get around BBS every year and, and always make this statement, we have to treat complaining around here like profanity. When someone whines and complains about how difficult it is to serve and be around each other and to do hard and difficult things around here, when they complain about it, you're to look at them and go, did you just drop the F-bomb? <laughs> and you're saying, oh, that's not even comparable. No, it's much worse. 
Complaining is much worse. Because what you say when you complain is God doesn't exist. God doesn't love me. I need to be God. I'm going to, and that is false worship. That is literally, that is profanity. That is God is empty. God is small and I'm big and I'm in charge. And Paul says you can't do that in the church. No, you fight this profanity by serving others. With reverence before God, you look at one another and you say, God saved me. He gave me the spirit and he's bound us together as a family and we're in the presence of God. So I can't take my relationship with you lightly. I I can't do this trivially because we're in the presence of God. So with fear and trembling, how am I going to serve you? I'm not going to bash you with my tongue. I'm not going to judge you and condemn you and belittle you because that's profanity. That's worshiping a false God, the one I see in the mirror. No, it's not what you, what have you done for me lately? It's what I'm going to do for you today. And with fear and trembling, you serve one another in this way. You're not nitpicking one another. You're looking intently with fear and trembling, asking, how can I serve you? You know, when Paul talks about a record of wrong... And he he says, we're tempted just to write out all the things that people do to us and don't do for us. The opposite of that in the church is with fear and trembling. You are writing out things that you're going to do constantly to serve others. You're keeping a list. What can I do for you? Oh, we were in a conversation the other day and you told me you needed this. You you told me you, you were worn out. So I'm going to come and I'm going to keep your kids one night so you can go on a date night. I'm go- You're keeping a list with fear and trembling of what it looks like to mirror and image Christ in the church. And Paul says this is the result of it. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, when we read through this, we see the word blameless. It means without accusation. We see innocent. It means without guilt. And then we see without blemish. It means to be totally without sin. And we read that and we go, that's impossible. Because if you look at my life, there's plenty of accusation. If you look at my life, it's full of guilt and condemnation. I deserve hell before God. And I am not pure of sin. I'm, I, I'm full of sin. Do you want to know the truth? So how do we live like this? Well, notice the, the term here used. Children of God. The only way you're blameless is in Christ. There's no blame. No, no blame of sin. No accusation of sin in Christ. He is righteous. He is, he is pure. In Christ, you are without sin. You are innocent. And in Christ, you will be made fully without sin. And so what Paul is saying here is in light of the gospel, in light of your status as children of God, in light of this sinless status you have positionally with God, you are to live like it in the world. Now notice the way he describes the world. Crooked and twisted. Meaning the world has gone on its own path. It has deviated off course. We, we exist to glorify God. What the world does is glorify self. Then notice he says twisted. What the world does is it's twisted. It's literally perverse. The, The children of the world are perverse. 
meaning they are turned away from God and they are turned on themselves. And you who know the gospel, you're a child of God. You are no longer turned towards sin. You're turned toward Christ and you are to stick out in the world. You are to shine forth, he says here, as lights, as stars, as moons, as suns in the world. That is the way you are to look in the world. The world is dark and it is crooked and it is perverse. And you are to live differently. You see, the world serves self. It's twisted, turned on self. You're turned toward God. And so you can serve others. And you're to see that clearly as you live out the gospel in the world. And notice he describes it this way in verse 16. Holding fast. Now, we could translate that holding forth the word of life. It's like holding out a a cold glass of water in a dirty, dusty, dry desert. As you live out the gospel and you love and you serve one another in light of who you are in Christ, this is what it's to be like. You're holding forth refreshment to the world around you. Your lights. And he says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul says, I'm responsible for you as a church. I'm responsible for your souls. Paul says, I will stand before God. And give an account for the way that you lived. And if you live in disunity, and if you're constantly whining and complaining about one another, if you're fighting one another the same way the world fights, then my work's in vain. This is why when we think about church planting, and we think about evangelism and missions, our goal is not just to get a bunch of people saved, not just to get a bunch of numbers on a page, Not just to say we plant at that church, this church, that church. But it is the health of the church. Paul is concerned about their unity. And he says if if you're fighting like the world, then we just established another group and called it a church. No, the world fights and bickers. But you're to be united around the gospel. And in your unity, the gospel is to be seen. This is what Jesus described as this city on a hill. The kingdom is a city on a hill. The church is this city on a hill in a dark world. And it is our unity, our unity and love and mercy and grace for one another that shows the world the gospel. The gospel is irrelevant if we fight just like everybody else does. He says, no, you are to be different in Christ. You've been accepted by the father. So you accept one another in Christ. You've been forgiven by the father. So you forgive one another in Christ. You have hope from the father. So you're willing to give for one another. The picture he paints here is the same thing that we've seen when maybe we're hanging out with friends and, and, and all the kids run to the playroom and the playroom's full of toys And the kids run in and everybody's grabbing the toy that they want. They're grabbing the thing that they want. And what do they all, they they grab the toy and someone says, no, I want that toy. No, I want that toy. And what goes on? We, We start hearing one word. And what is it called? Mine, mine, mine. No, that's mine. Then they're pulling hair and they're throwing each other on the ground. And, and what Paul is saying is, no, that's like. That's like children of the world. 
They're, they're, not that your children are children of the world. It's an illustration. But, but that's the way the world fights. My. Why? It's perverse. It's turned in on itself. And he says, no, you've been saved by God to do something different. God has already given you all the toys in the gospel. You have a treasure chest of everything you would ever want and need in the gospel. And so as Christians in the world, you're not walking around going, mine, I have to have mine. No, you're saying, here, what do you need? I can serve you. Brother and sister in Christ, we have everything we need in the gospel, so we're free to serve one another. We're not walking in the church saying, mine, that's my position, that's my authority. I serve the coffee, I call the shots, I want mine. No, we go, whoa, it's all Jesus's, so I can serve you. And we, we've all experienced this. We, we experience this on a weekly basis because we are involved in groups other than the church. And if you're, if you're involved with any other group of people, you know what this is like. You know the way the world fights. You know what they want. You feel it. Sometimes I am shocked. Like, my kids are on, on teams or we're involved in, in a certain group that they're a part of. And you, you show up for things and there's a meeting and people begin to yammer back and forth. Wah, 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 wah. And then after the meeting, there's the gossip. And people enjoy that. They think that's fun. And I'm often just like, whoa, I forgot because the church doesn't play by those rules. We don't treat one another that way. So that, that freaked me out a little bit, that you were willing to talk about her behind her back. That you were willing to say that thing that you really don't know is true about them, but you said it anyway just because you want to be seen as someone who has it together and they don't. We experience that. Think about your work environments. Think about the booster club meetings you go to. Think about the, the, the break rooms that we're a part of and all of the drama. And he says, no, when you come to church, it is to be like a cold glass of water in a dusty desert. And you go, oh, we don't fight by those rules. And it's refreshing. We're not standing around going, can you believe what she did? We, we, the, you know, growing up, I remember the, the prayer line listening to older ladies in our church and it was eventually called the gossip line because it was calling one another to pray for one another but usually what happens in that scenario is hey we need to really play pray for Arlene did you hear what Bobby did to her you hear what's going on over there yeah we really need to pray for them oh it's a mess you won't believe what's going oh we don't fight by those rules now, we show up to Erlene and Bobby and we say, hey, it's not about what he did or she did. It's about what Jesus did. And we're going to point you to Jesus and we're going to love you. We're going to serve you. We, we, we show up in environments where people just love to hold grudges. It's like power and it's draining. It makes people miserable. Well, you stole my prom date back in 1996. And then now our kids are playing t-ball together and I still ain't speaking to you. How draining is it to live that way? And yet you show up at church and you're like, yeah, a few months ago you said that really? 
horrible thing about me on Facebook, but I love you anyway. And it's the first person you're embracing when you show up for church. And we show up and that's refreshing. That, 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 that's like a light in darkness and we can see our way and we see what the kingdom's going to look like. And he says in verse 7, Paul says, I'm an example of this, just as Jesus was an example of this. He says, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Well, what Paul says here is, I'm willing to do whatever it takes for you to see and experience the gospel. Your faith is in the gospel. And this church's faith is in the gospel to the point that they would give money to send Paul out to preach the gospel. Now Paul's in prison and he may die for the gospel. And Paul says, I'm willing to die. Notice the text, to be poured out just like Christ was emptied for our good. I will be emptied for your faith so that you see that the gospel is real. I will suffer and the picture he paints here of the Old Testament sacrifice, where they would come to the altar and, and the animal would be sacrificed and the blood would pour out. You would have the goat and the lamb. You would have the bull. And the person offering the sacrifice would stand there and, and the, the blood, something died so I can have fellowship with God. How do I celebrate my fellowship with God? Well, there was a drink offering, a cup of wine that was poured out to say you are in fellowship with God and you are celebrating your fellowship with God. And Paul says, I will be poured out. Get this so that you can enjoy the gospel. I will be poured out. It's not about me. I want you to know the love of God. So I will be poured out in love for you. I will serve you the way Jesus served me because I want you to know you have fellowship with God. And I want you to know the love of God. I will get burned. I will commit myself to you knowing you may not commit back and you might leave. But I'm going to be here and I ain't going anywhere and I'm going to love you. Why? Because it's not about me. I want you to know the love of God. So I will be poured out for you. What am I closest friends, his mother was gathered in a prayer group. And my friend was, he was living wild as a buck. He was just, he was just crazy. He was into sin, doing whatever he wanted to. And his mother was just broke, so broken hearted over his life, prayed for him, shared the gospel with him. And she was gathered at church with a group of women and she said these words. She said, if it means God taking my life for him to follow Jesus, that's what I want. Are you willing to be poured out that way so others experience the gospel? Because a few months later she was diagnosed with cancer. And it wasn't long after that. So Wayne Cole, some of you know him. He's a deacon, serves at Ashland, Lexington. His mom died of cancer. And he believed the gospel because of what happened to her. She prayed that prayer. I will be poured out if it means my son believes the gospel. What are the ways in which you're willing to be poured out for others here today? Do you want others to experience? Do you want their faith to be strengthened? When you look at them, are they tools to be used for your good? 
Or are you the one serving and saying, I want to do whatever it takes for you to know Jesus and experience Jesus? Some of you come in here today and you, you, you're stricken with condemnation. Are you looking at others going, I will do whatever it takes so that they don't feel that condemnation. I will say whatever it takes so they don't feel that guilt. Folks come in here and they're abandoned. They're alone. Are you willing to pour out your resources and your time to just be with them, to serve them? What are you willing to do today to be poured out so others experience the gospel? Paul says, whatever it takes, even my life, and you need to do the same. Notice he says, be glad with me. Be glad by pouring yourself out for others. That's the way you find happiness is not mine, 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 but serving others. The people who live mine, mine, mine are the most miserable people you'll know. The people who live Jesus, 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 they're found serving others and they're the happiest people we know. And Paul describes all of this in the context of worship. Fear and trembling, willing to pour my life out on the altar in worship to God for your good. You see, a lot of us, we head to church and we think, you know, if Clay would, if he would just sing the songs that I want, I would be able to worship better. I mean, we sing oceans all the time everywhere else I go to. Why don't we sing that 10 minute long drawn out song here? That I don't know how much about Jesus it has to do with. Why don't we do that? And if if he would just sing holy, holy, holy. Like we did growing up. And I hope he does that today. And I hope... They don't play the drums and the electric guitar. I hope it's just that piano, just the keyboard. But I, I really hope we sing Blessed Assurance today. That reminds me of Easter growing up. And if we would sing those songs, I could really worship. And that's not the question you need to be asking today. To worship, what you need to be saying is, what do my brothers and sisters need? And I don't worship when I hear my favorite song. That's not, that doesn't define my worship. I worship when I hear my brother has a serious need. And I'm going to pour myself out for him. And I, I'm, going, I'm going to worship Christ and declare the worth of Christ by serving him. My sister needs to be encouraged today. What can I do for her? That is what worship looks like in the church. But that's, that kind of worship isn't something we just drift toward. It's not like, I almost said throwing our CD in the car. We don't have CDs anymore. Pushing a button, plugging our iPhone in. And oh, the passion, it's on, passion. I just drift in worship as I drive around. Worship, we don't just drift toward worship. Not the kind of worship that God wants from the church. It takes fear and trembling. It takes standing before God saying, what do I have that I can pour out for your good?